0: Hello everyone and welcome to Stories of the Stone Circles, the archaeology podcast all about Britain and Ireland during the time of stone circles, where we're going to be talking about stone circles and other important archaeology from this period and think about the people who were alive thousands of years ago. My name is Nick Overton, I'm an archaeologist and a member of Project Time. If you missed our first episodes, you can go back and listen to members of the team discussing what this project is about and some of the exciting things that are in store over the next three years. This week we're going to be joined by Julian Thomas, a member of Project Time and Professor of Archaeology at the University of Manchester, and he's going to be giving us a flavour of what was happening in Britain and Ireland between three and 1,500 BC. So, let's see what Julian had to tell us. Hi Julian, Uh, welcome back to the podcast, how are you?
1: I'm fine. Nice to be back.
0: Good. Marvellous. Lovely to have you back. So, in the previous episodes of this podcast, we've been joined by members of the Project Time, including yourself, and we've been hearing about the aims and the objectives of the project. And in particular, we've been talking about this period, three and a half to 1,500 BC in Britain and Ireland, and we've been talking about it as a particularly dynamic and exciting period of time where we see some dramatic changes in the lives of Of people who are living then. In future episodes we're going to be delving into the details of particular aspects of this period and we're also going to be thinking about some of the ways that we as archaeologists study the period. But obviously before we get into the detail we need to set the scene. So Julian you have perhaps the slightly unenviable task in this episode of giving us a whistle-stop tour of Britain and Ireland during these 2000 years if that sounds okay to you. I'll do my best. Marvellous I, I knew you'd be up for the challenge. So um, like in most archaeological accounts when we start at a particular date we're actually jumping into a story that's already part way through. So can you tell us a bit about what's happening in Britain and Ireland in the build-up to three and a half thousand B.C.?
1: So in conventional archaeological terms, 3,500 BC is a little way into the Neolithic, the New Stone Age. Mm. And before that, we've got the Mesolithic. We've got the period after the last Ice Age, when Britain is an island of hunter-gatherers. And sometime around 4,000 BC there's a first set of big changes when a whole set of innovations are introduced into this country. Uh, Things like domesticated plants and animals, like flint mining, like pottery vessels, like large timber buildings, uh, like polished stone tools, including stone axes. And then a little bit later, we start to get mortuary monuments introduced and then large enclosed sites that we call causeway enclosures. Now, these changes uh, are certainly ones that owe something to the continent, and there's certainly people coming to Britain from the continent. But the open question is, is it simply that an entirely new set of people are coming over and taking over, or is there some more intricate relationship between people coming in from outside and people within Britain changing their way of life and becoming part of something new? But There's certainly some kind of very big social um, shake-up going on at this time, um, and part of that shake-up, I think, is that new communities are being formed, perhaps out of shreds and tatters of old ones, uh, and they're forming around ideas of descent and shared wealth, and that shared wealth includes animals, plants and a whole series of other things not all of which need necessarily be material so both tombs and timber halls were parts of the way by which new collective identities were being brought into being so the landscape that we've got by 3500 BC is one dotted with a whole series of new kinds of structures which are essentially the things around the which these new Communities have cohered.
0: Okay, so so that gives us a great idea about this backdrop. This project is going to be looking at these dynamic and dramatic changes that occur after three and a half thousand BC. So, what do you see as the the really big themes or areas of change in this period between three and a half and one and a half thousand BC?
1: Well, I think the really important point is that we, if we've got this setup of The Neolithic, whatever we take that to be, an entirely new way of life being established around about 4000 BC. From 3500 BC, things start going off in a whole series of different trajectories. So, one of the things that happens is that in terms of people's everyday lives, you've got a beginning of the Neolithic in which all various elements of a farming way of life are introduced, but actually, people start crafting that and actually abandoning some aspects of it quite early on. So that by uh, 3,500, the extent to which they're still invested in the cultivation of cereals is declining to some extent. And one of the reasons for that perhaps is they're starting to accumulate much larger herds of animals. And that has a whole series of advantages to it because animals represent mobile wealth And you can do an awful lot of things with those animals. You give them as gifts, uh, you can use them as bride wealth or dowry, uh, you can use them to accumulate followers, you can use them in feasts and so on. So I think people are investing in these very large herds and are starting to accumulate a certain amount of power. And that means that there's a sense in which being mobile has an advantage to it Uh, if you're following these herds from one set of seasonal pastures to another. So they're starting to move away from a more settled way of life. Uh, You see, they're starting to develop ways of living in the landscape that are more mobile and that are less focused on the substantial dwelling structures. Mm -hmm. So we don't find that there are big houses and halls once we get beyond this 3,500 kind of of time, Uh, unless, uh, you're talking about an area like Orkney, mm. where you're moving in the opposite direction and where you start to get more people uh, living in progressively larger and more focused settlements. And that really brings me on to the second one of my things, which is regionalization. Mm. Because rather than everyone doing the same thing, again, from the middle of the fourth millennium, people are starting to do rather different things. Orkney goes one way, uh, the South of England goes uh, in another direction. And again, it's this sense that uh, monuments, artifacts, ways of life are being crafted in rather different ways. And it's as if different regional groups have picked up that set of resources and are playing with them in ways which are enabling them to create new ways of life themselves. So rather than there being a un- neolithic there are a whole series of different Neolithics.
0: And of course, that's exactly what what this project is interested in, thinking about teasing apart those different types of Neolithics as opposed to thinking about just one.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you're getting different regions which are slowly drifting apart from 3,500 BC onwards. And then you get a counter-movement in the opposite direction from about 3,000, where you start to get some of the things that we're most interested in. Uh, in this project, things like groove wear, like hinge monuments, uh, like stone circles in particular, which are super regional phenomena, which are perhaps for the most part originating in the, in the north of Breton, but which have this effect of bringing these regions back together to a certain extent. Although maybe those contacts are happening principally uh, between regions rather than. There necessarily being a, a homogenization going on. So that's my second thing is mm-hmm. regionalization. Artifacts, uh, portable artifacts, then is the next thing I want to, to talk about. And I think from 3,500 BC, one of the things that we can happen, we can see happening is uh, a greater degree of elaboration, more decoration or marking of artifacts. And I think this is about distinctiveness again, the distinctiveness of different groups of people, but also the distinctiveness of particular places and particular activities that you're wanting to draw attention to using these things. Uh, And these various kinds of increasingly elaborate material culture enable you to establish new connections and new relationships at this time when things are perhaps moving in a whole series of different directions. Then, as we move towards the later part of our period, you start to see perhaps material things being used in ways which are more formulaic and more standardised. So that when we talk about beaker burials, for instance, the objects that are being used in them are not as diverse, perhaps than, than what's happening in the later part of the Neolithic. There are perhaps more established and, as I say, formulaic ways of doing things. So, again, we've got a process of diversification and then a process of things coming back together. Treatment of the dead. That's the next thing I want to talk about. Uh, if in that period that I've been talking about, after 4000 BC, we're seeing new forms of collective burial, which are connected with the establishment of new forms of collective identity, By 3500 BC, that changes again and we're starting to see perhaps more of an interest in particular lines of descent and inheritance. So although some people might talk about the emergence of individuals in a modern sense, I think it's more like we're seeing the emergence of particular families who are acquiring a greater degree of importance and maybe a greater degree of wealth perhaps a greater degree of authority. And all of those things are being passed down between the generations and the treatment of particular people in special ways in death is one of the ways in which that inheritance is facilitated. But on top of that, as well as there being uh, a growing emphasis on particular people being buried in particular ways in things like round barrows with grave goods, From about 3000 BC, that's complemented by a shift away from inhumation and towards cremation. And this is perhaps part of the same process of emphasising particular people. But here what you're doing is dramatising the moment in which those people pass from this world. You're creating an event which is very spectacular that involves the burning and destruction of the body and as well as... Um, drawing attention to their passing, you're also creating sometimes special places by having these the, place, the places where massive pyres are being burned. And very often you find that those places are ones that are later having monuments constructed on them. Now that brings me to my next theme, uh-huh. which is monumentality, which Perfect. I guess, as the title of this podcast suggests, is one of the key themes of the whole project. Uh, And really one of the most distinctive aspects of this whole period, uh, because throughout the period that we're dealing with, you're seeing massive constructions being established in the British landscape and the Irish landscape uh, that have really left an indelible mark on those, those landscapes. So at the start of the period that we're dealing with, we're seeing the tail end of these enclosed sites, these oval Uh, enclosures that we call causewayed enclosures. And they're starting to be eclipsed by cursus monuments, which are also enclosures, but they're linear enclosures. And what is interesting is that in some cases you get a cursus monument built over the top of a causewayed enclosure. And that I think is telling you about changes in practice, changes in activity, changes in the ways in which places are being used So that perhaps rather than having a whole lot of people gather together in a particular space to feast and exchange and tell stories, instead they're processing across those spaces. So that relationship between people and their landscape is is clearly changing in all of this. Um, At the same time in Ireland, you're seeing an elaboration, uh, an increase in the scale of chambered tombs uh, in Passage tomb tradition, and that again is part of uh, that process of the elaboration of of mortuary practice. Um, Just like places like Duggleby Howe in Yorkshire, which seems to attract a series of burials over a long period of time, it may be that the special people uh, who are being cremated uh, are then being introduced into these passage tombs, particularly the passage tombs of places like uh, the Bing and the Boyne uh, in Ireland. But all of this is then replaced by a new suite of monumental architecture as you go into the period after about 3000 BC. And this is part of that uh, that drawing back together of regions that I was talking about earlier, because there's a whole series of things like um, concentric timber circles, like stone circles, like stone and earth and timber avenues uh, various kinds of structures some of which may be uh, effectively shrines and many of which are then going to be enclosed with within uh, hinge bank and ditches at some stages this means you've got a whole suite of architectural forms that can be drawn in drawn on and mixed together in a variety of ways to give us these very elaborate late Neolithic monumental landscapes that we're very familiar with. Um, so it's a mixing and a matching of elements that gives us sites like Afri or Callanish, And uh, this tends towards a, a kind of a, a crescendo of monumental complexity in the period around 2500 BC. But our period also covers the ebbing away of that. Uh, the process by which monuments become more dispersed, more small scale, and then we see an emphasis on round barrows, a monumentality of death, Uh, and you start to see these uh, cemeteries of round barrows emerging from the Beaker period onwards into the Chalcolithic, into the early Bronze Age, and very often in the same areas of the landscape as these, these monumental complexes, or perhaps
0: uh, clustered
1: around the edges of them, as we see in the Stonehenge landscape. Mm. So that's my
0: my main set of themes. Ooh, yeah, what what a what a wonderful um, sort of tour through that period, um, and uh, it you you provide us with a with quite a, a vibrant picture of of the things that are going on. Um, some of the some of the themes that you you give us, because of the the broad brush nature of the overview, that. We, we asked you to give um, some of those changes, particularly things like maybe changes to uh, identity or to society and social structures. They might feel a little bit, um, I guess, like abstract or intangible to somebody who isn't an archaeologist, who isn't used to thinking about how we can take materials and think about these less material things. But as you've, as you've sort of painted really well there, this period is full of amazing sites, many of which are, are you know, really famous, very prominent, um, even to people who aren't archaeologists. And museums have wonderful evocative and enigmatic artefacts from this period as well. So how do you see some of the really well-known sites or artefacts as fitting into these themes or these changes that you identified?
1: Yeah, I think there is um, there is a view that it, as you go into the late part of the Neolithic, you're starting to see a process of uh, everything being drawn together towards particular centres. But I think it's really important to realise that there are many different places within Britain and Ireland which are focal uh, through this period and in which you get this mixing of different architectural and artifactual elements so that you can see stories being played through in a whole series of of different landscapes. You don't have to necessarily go to the big famous ones in order to get the whole story. Now Stonehenge is is obviously a really good example of that. Mm. Uh, You do have the Stonehenge Hedge Monument with its stones. You do have the Stonehenge Cursus before that. Uh, You do have a whole series of other Hinge Monuments uh, like clearly the massive hinge at at, at Durrington Walls. But there are other areas where you can see equally interesting sequences developing. You can go to Orkney, Mm. and there you can see the fantastic, uh, enormous settlement of the Ness of Brodga, uh, only a stone's throw throw away from the Brodga hinge. Mm. Uh, You've then got Maze Howe, Passage Tomb, all of these things in, in a a very small area so there are these places where you can see lots of the different elements of these processes developing but equally it's it's really important to recognize that throughout the whole of Britain and Ireland there are fantastic monuments that you can go and visit so there are sites like Arbelow in Derbyshire where you've got the combination of a hinge bank and ditch with a stone circle there are sites like the Rollwright Stones in Oxfordshire where you've got a really nice stone circle, but you've also got uh, uh, a portal dolmen and other elements in, in that immediate landscape. Uh, places like Cain Hill in Lothian, where you've got a hinge, which has got a huge cairn uh, with a series of burials in it, and kiss. So again, that's a really nice combination of things. Duggleby Howe in East Yorkshire, uh, up on the wolds. There, uh, it's a lovely mound to go and visit. Uh, You can stand on it on a nice day, but read the story of what's going on there. And you've got the sequence through from uh, Middle Neolithic, a a series of single grave burials, one after another. And then you get cremations after that or go towards the the later part of our period. You can go and see some of the the really wonderful barrow cemeteries of the early Bronze Age, Uh, like, for instance, Overton Hill. Near Eighthbury, that's a, another good example. So although there is a story that we could tell about political centralization, I'd want to step back from that to a certain extent and say there are really wonderful places to go and visit with various elements of, of this story right the way across Britain and Ireland.
0: Mm, and, and again, of course, because Project Time is looking to gather all of the available dates, across this period from the whole of Britain and Ireland, it's going to give us a really good chance to, to think about whether we, we can talk about that political centralization or whether it's actually uh, our current focus on particular sites is because of the, the, the different research histories of these areas as opposed to what, how important these areas may have been in the past.
1: Yeah, and those research histories are partly a result of the different character of the archeology span in these different regions. So the site that I excavated some while ago at Dunragget in Southwest Scotland, um, a a very well-known Scottish archeologist said, well, if that site had been made of stone, it would have been as well known as Stonehenge. It (laughs) simply is a massive complex of monuments composed of timber. So there's a kind of uh, historical accident in the way in which particular areas attract lots of attention and others don't. And, you know, as you say, it depends very much on the the particular histories of research, how we understand the relationships between these different regions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, OK, we're going to we're not going to grill you anymore on the archaeology, because I think you've done a fantastic job of of giving a, a really rich overview of this period. In the future episodes, we're going to drill down into the detail a bit more. So uh, in your account, Julian, you you spoke about lots of different types of sites, sites like round barrows or cursuses or causeway enclosures or hinges. Now, if if you're listening to this and and you don't know what they are, don't worry, because we're going to have whole episodes dedicated to each one of these different site types where we really think about um, what they look like, Uh, what archaeological investigation has told us about them and also how they perhaps fit into those kind of narratives that you provided us with, Julian. So um, a perfect introduction. Now, in the second bit of this podcast, we're going to move away from... Uh, 3,500, 1,500 BC, and we're going to instead focus on you um, and and, and ask you some questions about you as an archaeologist yourself. So maybe the the, the best first question to start with is how did you actually become an archaeologist?
1: Well, I have had a fascination for archaeology from an extremely early age. Um, My mum had some archaeology books, which I used to stare at even before I could read. Uh, At one point, apparently, I dug a hole in our garden when I was very small. And when asked what on earth I was doing, I said, I'm looking for Romans. So at least least I've got over that. And certainly when I was very small, uh, I did visit sites like Stonehenge and Avery. And I, I think some of that has stayed with me.
0: Yeah, I bet. Well, and and of course, you, you've you been involved in, in some of the latest excavations at Stonehenge. So it must have been it must have been quite amazing to to have gone to a site like that as a child and then to to be there as an adult, actually directing work there.
1: Absolutely. I remember when uh, we were digging at the Southern Circle at Durrington Walls, it, every day going into work was like having an epiphany.
0: <laughs> I think that's I, I mean, as, as an archaeologist, that you couldn't want any more, I think, than that. It's quite incredible. Um, so we, we can now move on to one of our regular uh, features in this podcast, uh, which is called Unexpected Archaeology, where we ask all of our guests to give us one uh, archaeological fact that might surprise the listener. So what's your Unexpected Archaeology, Julian?
1: Well, this is a true story. Um, some of the listeners have probably seen the film The Dig, about the Sutton Hoo excavation that's mm-hmm. uh, just been out quite recently. And uh, the young woman in the film, Peggy Piggott, I knew was a much, uh, well, uh, an older lady uh, who was then Piggy Guido, and she told me a story about the, the excavation that didn't make it into the film, Ooh. which is that one night the excavation team were in the pub together and Stuart Piggott was stood at the bar and two locals came up to him and said, have you found any gold? And he said, no, no, nothing like that. Uh, it so happened, in the pocket of his jacket was the great gold belt buckle from Sun, which he was keeping there for safety.
0: Incredible. I can't believe that didn't make it into the uh, film. Well, well, and, and that perfectly takes us on to the next of our regular questions, um, which is, um, have you... Uh, like Piggott, found any treasure?
1: Yeah, um, disgracefully, I'm quite good at finding treasure. <laughs> um, and so, for instance, at the Barrow Hills Long Barrow excavation, I was involved in digging up the the, uh, the central burial, uh, and I found the jet belt slider uh, mm. right at the hip of one of the burials. And also at, at Dawston Hill, where we've both been working in, in recent years, um, I was lucky enough to find the little pit next to the mortuary structure in the Eastern Mound, uh, which contained two lovely axes and uh, a beautiful bifacially worked knife. Mm. So, um, yes, I'm lucky.
0: Yes, well, and as somebody that digs with you on a regular basis, I can confirm you are indeed lucky, well, certainly luckier than I am, um, but, you know, as long as one of us finds the treasure, that's that's absolutely fine. Um, and staying with on-site-based uh, questions, um, we, given that we dig together, um, we both know that uh, maybe one of the most important times on a site is tea break, uh, where we all get together and have a, cu- uh, have a cup of tea, um, but... Obviously, a tea break isn't complete without biscuits. So what would you say is your most important uh, on-site tea break biscuit? Well,
1: for dunking purposes, I would always go for some kind of oat biscuit. But on the other hand, I'm also very partial to any kind of chocolate-covered biscuit. So for me, the happy medium, the Rolls-Royce of tea break biscuits, is the chocolate hobnob.
0: Oh. I'm 100% with you there. I I got a packet of dark chocolate hobnobs last week, and I I fell in love with them all over again. Uh, Right, okie dokie. So before we let you go... um, we just want to ask one more question uh, and that is if if we've got people listening out there who are really really interested in getting involved in archaeology and hopefully as we move, move forward this year and lockdown um, and the restrictions are lifted and people can get back out into uh, the wide world again what what advice would you give to people who want to get involved in archaeology
1: I'd say definitely try and get involved in your local groups Um, so have a look at the Council for British Archaeology website have a look also at the current archaeology website where there's a list of local societies Uh, those local societies will do things like have having lectures and also running their own field projects if you're a relatively young person you might think about joining the Young Archaeology Club through the CBA Uh, and if, if you can't find anything by those means, go along to your local museum, because they very often have contacts with whatever archaeology is going on locally. But yeah, I think it's it's very easy to get involved. And I think it's also very repaying.
0: Yeah, well, absolutely. As, as you know, both of us as people who go out and excavate every summer, um, I, I think we can both testify to how wonderful it is to be out and to uh, get the soil underneath your fingernails and uh, and well in the case of you find treasure as well <laughs> all right well uh, so uh, thank you very much uh, for that julian um you've given us an amazing sort of backdrop to the period that we're going to be thinking about uh, during this project um and we look forward to to having you back in future episodes where we're going to be talking about specific parts of, of this period in more detail thanks a lot So, there we have it. Many thanks to Julian Thomas for joining us and giving us such a vibrant picture of that period three and a half to 1,500 BC in Britain and Ireland. In next month's episode, we're going to be joined by project members Dr. Saren Griffiths and Professor Tom Hyam, uh, and they'll be talking about dating, and in particular, how archaeologists date the materials they recover and how they use them to create chronologies of people's activity in the past. To make sure you don't miss out on that or any other episode, you can subscribe to Stories of the Stone Circles on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher and CastBox. And if you want to keep up to date with Project Time, you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Project Time Arc, A-R-C-H at the end. And don't forget to visit our website www.project-time.blog where you can read about the project, the team and some of the sites that are part of the project. So until next time, goodbye.